This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. I want to talk tonight about how to turn a burning ember into a roaring fire. Jason asked me to address the idea of reigniting your passion and your purpose for life. And last week, he did a good job of setting the stage and introducing purpose uh, as it relates to a believer and their relationship with God and the world. So I really want to tune in tonight on this aspect of passion, and I'll, I'll share it with you again, how to turn a burning ember into a roaring fire. You see, our purpose as believers is to know him and to make him known. Now listen to me. Our purpose is to know God and to make him known. But you do need to know him. Not just about him. I was raised in a religious tradition. I memorized and I repeated and I followed pathways and I did everything as a young person could do to try to become. But I just knew about him. And I didn't realize that we first belong and then we become. Had it totally backwards. We first belong. That's the way God ordered it. And then he will help us to become. But too many people, and maybe somebody here tonight is trying to Become more like him so you can belong to him. doesn't work that way. And you may try all your life and miss what he has for you. There were seven sons of a Jewish priest in the first century, recorded in the book of Acts, who repeated the behavior of many young men. They were known as itinerant Jewish exorcists, and they would go about and endeavor to cast demons out of people because there were demons in people in the first century. Many of us would probably admit that in some primitive nations today, there may be demons. But I'm here to tell you tonight that today, even in America, the powers of lawlessness are at work. And we shouldn't be unwise to think that we've moved above and beyond and we don't have to worry about these types of issues. But the point is, these seven sons of a Jewish high priest were attempting to cast demons out. And here's what they said. Acts chapter 19, verse 15 sort of summarizes it. But they said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out of that man. And the demon answered, intelligent. Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. But who are you? See, you need to know him. It's not enough to know about him, to cite his name. This purpose to know God, it becomes the foundation of making him known. And from an early age, I've wanted to serve the purpose of God to my generation. And this is a purpose worth living our lives for. And so passion really is zeal. You can jot it in your notes. Passion is zeal which allows us to fulfill our purpose. Psalm 69.9 predicts regarding the Messiah... And interestingly, this prediction 
is fulfilled in John chapter 2 when Jesus Christ goes into the temple and turns upside down the tables of the money changers and he throws out those who are buying and selling and he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And his disciples remembered that it was written. And what they remembered was Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Have you ever been consumed with something before? If you don't know where I'm going yet, you'll know soon. This zeal, this passion drove Jesus. It drove him in his life, not just into a temple to cleanse it, but it drove him to go among the masses and to heal the sick and to cast out the demons and to raise the dead. But in Luke it says, but he turned his face toward Jerusalem. There was a passion, a zeal in Jesus that was driving him. It was driving him to a time and a place. And he was heading back to Jerusalem, even though he told his disciples, it's going to be terrible. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be brutally treated and beaten and forsaken. And I'm going to die. And their simple question is, well, why would you go? Why not avoid it? Because the zeal consumed him. It drove him. And so he, he rides in on a donkey, a king on a donkey, sign of peace. And they worship him as a Messiah. When you think he should run for his life. And he has a final meal with his disciples. And he says to them, one of you is going to betray me. He knew it. He says, you're going to betray me into the hands of evil men. He knew it was Judas. Why don't you run, Jesus? Because Jesus was going to hand himself over. Because Jesus is going to the cross. Because Jesus came to fulfill a purpose. And passion will enable you to carry out your purpose. I believe God has a purpose for Jason and for Candace. I believe God has a purpose for Courageous Church. And I believe that he wants to ignite a new passion in you that will enable you to carry it out, not by yourself, not in your strength, but because he will enable you to do it. And you won't look back or to the right or the left, and you will do it because his zeal will consume you, and it'll change your life. I know. I've experienced it. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Are you sinning tonight? What it says literally is, He who sins and keeps on sinning is of the devil. He who sins continuously. John is talking to believers, and he says, If you're a believer and you're sinning continuously, you're of the devil. You're not saved. If you're continuously sinning and not allowing God to change you, you're of your father, the devil. The, the, the devil is sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, here it is, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, including sin and death. And that's how he sets us free, removes the devil right out of the picture of our lives and sets us free. So I'm going to share three passion principles with you tonight that will change your life, I'm convinced. Because passion is the propeller or the engine that allows us to achieve our purpose. Purpose doesn't exist to accomplish passion. It's the other way around. Your passion will enable you to fulfill your purpose. Just as transportation exists to carry you, to deliver you to a destination. The goal, the objective is the destination. It's that we arrive. It's getting there. Our purpose is fulfilled or accomplished by our passion. And so in your notes, passion is the factor that compels us to fulfill our purpose. Give me one person with passion. I would choose them over 100 people with interest or desire. Give me one person burning with passion.
Jesus knew this. In John chapter 5, he talks about John the Baptist. Do you remember what he said about John? He says, John was a burning and a shining lamp or light. You hear that? John was a burning, shining light for the kingdom of God. How would you like that to be said of you? Burning and shining to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Quickly, let me give you some passion realities. Number one, the difference between a good leader and a great leader is passion. You'll see you can fill some of these in on your notes. A good leader and a great leader is passion. Number two, a passionate believer with a few skills will outperform a passive believer with many skills. Number three, passionate believers move churches beyond problems into opportunities. They don't get stuck. Number four, you can never effectively lead or serve something that you don't passionately care about. People will know sooner or later it'll fall, it'll fall apart. Number five, you can never start a fire in your ministry if it's not first burning inside of you. You see, passion builds great ministries. And the key is that the leader or the believers or the new converts are burning up. They're on fire. How many of you remember when you were a new Christian? Was it crazy? It was like every day was, a, was mercies new every morning? It was like, oh my gosh, I have this relationship with God. You couldn't wait to tell everybody. And people around you would say, oh yeah, just wait. You'll be like us soon enough. It'll change our life when this fire is reignited in us. Around the country tonight, men and women with little education or resources, mediocre facilities, are passing up the qualified because they're filled with passion. It makes the difference. Have you ever wondered what sets great churches apart from average ones or great pastors apart from mediocre ones or great Christians apart from apathetic ones? The answer is passion. It's passion. It's not luck or intellect or background or giftedness or appearance. It's passion. Any of those other things, they're characteristics of many leaders, but the key is passion. Think about this. Uh, over 50% of Fortune 500 CEOs were C or C-minus students in college. 75% of all U.S. presidents graduated in the lower half of their class in college. Not exceptional students. And over 50% of multimillionaires tonight never went to college, or if they did, they never finished. What does that tell me? It tells me they possessed a couple things. Common denominators. Attitude. That was their outlook, how they think. And passion. That's their emotion, how they feel and how they act. Jeremiah understood this. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. We'll put it up on the screen. His word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. Think about that. His word burned within me. Has that ever happened to you? Do you ever read God's word, hear God's word, and it just it, it, it touches something off in you? Because that's, that's normal. It should. Or the disciples, particularly Peter and John. Peter and John, beautiful gate. Acts chapter 3. Silver and gold have I none. Such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. This, this lame man from childhood now walking and leaping and praising God. You know the story? Peter and John arrested. They're arrested. 5,000 people are saved. Add it to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. 5,000 more now. They're before the Sanhedrin council after spending a night in jail. And they, they note a number of things. Who are these guys? They're unlearned, untrained fishermen. But they took note of them. They'd been with Jesus. And Peter raises his voice to him and tells him, look, there's salvation and no other. In fact, the stone that you builders rejected, he's now become 
the chief cornerstone. That's what he said to the Sanhedrin council, a little bolder than they were before Jesus was crucified, right? Big change, big change. And so the council says, well, we better not do anything with them because the crowds are really on their side at the moment. So we're just going to threaten you, do not speak in this name of Jesus. Anybody ever told you that before? You can't say the name of Jesus, can't bring your Bible to work, can't do this, you can't do that because we're in a pluralistic society, etc. What did Peter and John say? They said, we cannot help but speak what we've seen and heard. We can't help it. It's in us. We saw it. It's coming out of us. We can't help it. That's powerful. They're like, you say, well, why don't I feel that way? That's the point. If we don't feel that way, we've got to get that back. We've got to get that back. Because that's the thing that could take us from here to where we want to go, to our destination. The point is, if it's in your head, but it's not in your heart, you'll have little impact. But if it burns within you, it can change the world. So how do we turn a burning ember into a roaring fire? How do we ignite the spark? There's three things. First, we got to possess the blaze. You can jot that in your notes if you like. Second, we need to preserve the blaze. And third, we need to protect the blaze. I'm here to tell you tonight, a lot of us have not protected it. And that's why we're wanting. Let's start. How do we possess the blaze? And I'm going to use as an illustration someone you've recently studied, Nehemiah, from his book. Because it's a wonderful example. How do we possess the blaze? First of all, God puts it in us. God puts it in us. Now, before we go to Nehemiah, remember Jesus? He's described as the Word in John chapter 1. We studied it together. I taught that chapter. We enjoyed that very much. It says, in him, in the word, in Jesus, in him was what? Life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, the light that's in us, the light that shines in us, and that the darkness can't comprehend, the light that's in us, it's Jesus. How do we get that light in us? He puts it in us. It's not our light. It's his life. When I receive the life of Jesus, his light shines in my life. It's true. In fact, in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus has risen from the dead. He appears to the disciples. And the Bible says a strange thing. It says he breathed on them and said what? He said what? Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You say, well, they've already been healing the sick. They've already been casting out demons. They've already been preaching the gospel. Didn't they already have the Holy Spirit? No. Not yet. They were like prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament. But after Jesus rose from the dead, now you can get born again. Nicodemus wasn't born again yet. Can't get born again until Jesus raises from the dead. First, we've got to defeat the kingdom of darkness which Jesus did. The prince of darkness is off the throne of the earth. Jesus is on the throne again. Satan's just masquerading. So Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's their born-again experience. That's their conversion. And when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, do you think they did? That means the Holy Spirit took up residence in them. The Holy Spirit is now in them. The Holy Spirit is in these believers. And it's interesting because he's going to say in a little while, now wait, because we're going to do something more with the Holy Spirit in you. Something different. Something different. So the Holy Spirit is in them. So God puts it in us. Jesus breathed on them. And when you're saved, when you open the door and let God into your life, when you make Jesus Lord, you could say he breathes on you. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and your new creature. It's true. That's biblical. It's amazing. So how about Nehemiah? I said God puts it in us. God puts the blaze in us. Nehemiah 2.12. It's in your notes. Then I arose at night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one, listen to this, what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
God put something in Nehemiah's heart? Could he put something in your and my heart? Could God have put in Jason's heart to come to Salt Lake City? Could God have put in your heart to be here, to be a part of this fellowship? Could God speak to you and I tonight and forward and give us directions? Is it possible that God has walls for us to build? Mountains to take? That's true. God put it in his heart. So God puts it in us. Various biblical examples in your notes. I'll go through them quickly. Job 38, 36. God has put wisdom in the inner parts. Or he's given us understanding in our heart. Psalm 4, 7. You have put gladness in my heart. Isaiah 42, 1. I have put my spirit upon him. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law in their minds and their hearts. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will put my fear in their hearts. And look at Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2. You has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead before we were born again, before we met Jesus. He made us alive in Christ. And Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. See how it all works together? It's amazing. So our relationship to the Holy Spirit is going to determine, to some extent, the quality of our passion. And let me just say a word here. Because some of you may say, oh, I, I, I think I know where this is going. This sounds Pentecostal to me. Or this sounds charismatic. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was converted to Christianity by Baptists when I was in junior high school. I was ordained by the Assemblies of God. And I came to Salt Lake City to preach back in the 80s. The Pentecostal worldwide movement is made up a lot of, of a lot of denominations. I am a not a denominational Pentecostal person. The charismatic movement is made up of a lot of denominations as well as a lot of independents. But I don't like the labels. I'm a spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered Christian. And if you are spirit-led and spirit-filled and spirit-empowered, God can use you to turn the world right side up. And I like my Pentecostal and my charismatic and my fundamental and my evangelical. I like all my friends. But we need to get serious about how we're going to get the job done. It's going to be because we let the helper help us. The helper, the Holy Spirit who he sent to help us. Because Jesus said, it's good, good for you that I go away because I'm going to send you someone to help you. So we got to quit telling them we don't want them to help us. Because we're afraid of the Holy Spirit. Because of something we heard about some... Pentecostal or charismatic meeting or something. That's crazy. Time for us to be more mature than that. Okay? <laughs> I digress. <laughs> that was for free. All great works start on the inside of the heart of the leader or the believer. They always start inside of the heart. That's in your notes. You can pray for passion. You can ask God to increase it, to let it grow in you. And I want you to know, God put his vision, he put his passion in me. I left the Catholic Church when I was 12, even though I was confirmed at 13 because my parents suggest that I should, since all of the family, all of my father's nine brothers and sisters are all Catholic. I've got priests for cousins. I mean, we're a very Catholic family. So I went ahead and was confirmed. But when I was 14, I went to a meeting, a meeting like this. I went to a meeting, but it was with other students. And they painted a picture in that meeting that I had never heard of or seen before. They said that Jesus Christ was next to my heart. And he was asking me to open up my heart and to let him in. All I could remember growing up is Jesus on a cross above the altar, or Jesus in a statue with Mary or with the apostles, or Jesus at the right hand of the Father on the throne, and I thought of judgment, and I was trying to please him, and I was trying to earn my way, and they said Jesus was in a picture standing at the door of my heart, and then they said it's not just a picture, it's a scripture. It's Revelation 3.20, and Jesus is talking, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart, 
and I'm constantly knocking. And if anyone will open the door, that is the door of your heart, that is the door of your innermost being, let me into your spirit, I will come into you and I will fellowship with you and you with me. I believed it. Everything I knew about him, it all made sense. They just never told me. And that day, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And you know what he did? He put his Holy Spirit in me, and he put passion in me. And I started telling everybody I knew, and most of them were Catholics. I told my Catholic priest. I mean, I took my notepad, and I questioned him for three hours. My family, my family were so tired of me. They were not my big supporters because I became one of those born-agains. And I wasn't some Pentecostal or something. I was... I was just a born again. And they didn't like that at all. Because they got born again when they were baptized as babies. And my cousin, the priest, told me, well, we just believe it'll all work out because we're going to, you know, we're going to help you become. You're going to become through the years and you're going to learn all these things through the sacraments and you're going to belong one day because you're becoming. No! Now I belong and now I can become because Jesus is changing me from the inside out. Such a different perspective and it's the gospel right now right now you're welcome isn't that awesome so he puts it in us then we go out so i went out at night nehemiah 2:15 i went up on the wall and i began to expect he put it in me so i go out he acted so god will put it in you but then you got to act Someone said, find a passion and follow it. It's all the career advice you'll ever need. But Jesus did say in Acts 1.8, wait for the promise of the Father. Don't go out quite yet. That's what he told the 120 in the upper room. He said, even though you have the Holy Spirit, don't go out yet into Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. For John indeed baptized with water, but you will be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You are about to experience a power encounter, is what Jesus told them. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. I don't know about you, but I've tried witnessing before in my own power, and it's not very effective. Even with uh, much... Bible verses memorized, uh, some reasonable, rational arguments. Through my life, even as a pastor and post-pastor, I see the effectiveness when I yield to God, the Holy Spirit, and ask him what he's doing, and I follow instead of try to do it my way. It's so more, much more effective. It's interesting to me, Nehemiah wasn't a builder. He's really not qualified to build the wall. He's a cupbearer to the king, and yet he's driven by passion. That's in your notes. He's driven. You see, passion will take you places. It'll cause you to step out. He stepped out because God put it in him. Passion will take you places. And it's interesting in my life where passion took me in my years of ministry. It took me to plant churches in Salt Lake City, Ogden, Park City, Russia, and Southern California. Passion took me to speak as a speaker in national, denominational settings around the country in the 80s and 90s. Passion took me to lecture in five Bible colleges, four in the U.S. and one in Russia, even though I never graduated from college and I never attended Bible college. Passion took me to speak in churches in 25 states and eight countries of the world. And passion took me to become a leader among leaders in the cities where I pastors. I pastored. And passion has brought me back to Salt Lake City and Courageous Church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Passion took me places, and it'll take you places. But I'll tell you something. Honestly, tonight, I need the burning ember fanned into a roaring flame again in me. How about you? Paul reminded Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. See, passion takes us beyond average, beyond the logic of a moment, and it puts us on a level that causes us to do things that we would not have done 
and opens the door for God to bless things through us that he would not have blessed because we wouldn't have stepped out. So God puts it in us, then we go out, and then the people are ignited. This one's great. Nehemiah 2.18. I also told the people about the gracious hand of my God on me. He told them about what the king had done for him. He told them about how he'd prayed. I told the people about that and what the king had said to me, and they replied. The people heard the stories. The people heard the stories, and faith was built in the people. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they begun this good work. This is what's phenomenal. God sends Nehemiah to do it. He puts it in Nehemiah. Nehemiah acts on it. Nehemiah shares it, and other people do the work. Now, Nehemiah was involved too, of course. It went into Nehemiah, out of Nehemiah, and into the people who built up the walls. This is the power of sharing your story. This is the power of storytelling. This is the power of sharing your testimony of things that God is doing in your life. Share it and let someone else be inspired by what God has done for you. That's how Nehemiah inspired the people. He ignited them. It's critical for all of us to remember that fire never stays the same. Think about it. It either spreads or it burns out. So share your passion. Now second, how do we preserve the blaze? We'll go through this quickly. You see, when you're passionate at what you're doing, perseverance or the ability to finish something and commitment or dedication to the process kind of come with the territory. When the fire burns in you, God will give you the equipment necessary to get the job done. So in your notes, passion turns your have-tos into want-tos. How many of you have a lot of have-tos that you're dealing with every day? I have to do that. I really don't want to do it, but I have to do it. And how many of us overlook our have-tos sometimes? I really don't have to do that. I'm not going to do it. No, passion will turn those into want-tos. With passion, next, you'll enjoy the climb as much as reaching the summit. I just really quickly want to reflect on my ministry journey. I was a youth pastor in Grand Junction, Colorado back in 1981, 82, 83, 84. God was working in, in my heart, and I was stirred. God was doing awesome things, but I was a youth pastor, and I believe God had called me to pastor, called me to plant churches. And so there's a, there's a, a landmark just outside of Grand Junction, opposite Palisade, called Mount Garfield. If you've ever drove through Colorado and I-70, you've seen it on your left. It's, it's, it's a rather large mountain on the side of I-70. And I felt compelled that I would, I would go, as the sun set, and I would climb Mount Garfield, and I would spend the night alone on the top of Mount Garfield with God. Now, you've got to realize this is out... Really, you're about five or six miles from Grand Junction. It's desert. There's nothing out there. And when you get back off I-70 on the dirt roads, you get to the base of Mount Garfield. It's a hike from the base to the top of two miles. You say, that's nothing, a two-mile hike. It's almost straight up. It's a 2,000-foot elevation change in two miles. As the sun was setting, I climbed up the face of that mountain alone. When I got to the top, I'm on the top now. I'm looking over the Grand Valley. I sit down next to me, scampers up a scorpion right next to my leg. It's a very scary place to be alone at night. I found a different place to sit. And I looked over the city of Grand Junction and Clifton and Palisade and Fruta, and I prayed, and I thank God for all the wonderful things he'd been doing, but he'd been stirring things in me. See, I could see kind of down in that area where I lived, and that's the area where the Mormon missionaries had been coming by. They'd been coming by my home regularly. And they were knocking on the door. And I just got fed up as a youth pastor with that. And I said, you know what? I'm going to invite them in. And that started me on a two-year pilgrimage of having Mormon missionaries in my home every week, usually several times. We'd feed them, and we'd teach them, and we'd listen, and we'd take away their authority postures and get on common ground so we could present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was amazing. And God gave me in those two years a heart for Mormon missionaries and for Mormons. So now I'm up on the top of this mountain and I'm thinking about that and I'm looking off to the east and I'm looking out over the Grand Mesa and I know out across the great Rocky Mountains, across the Continental Divide is Denver. God's also stirring my heart for Denver. That's where I grew up. That's where my family is. God had already put in my heart to start a church in the Denver area on the west side around 
Red Rocks, Red Rock Community Church. And I believe he gave me the green light and said if that's what I wanted to do, I had a green light, I could go. But I also had to look to the west because about 33 miles to the west of where I was sitting was the border between Colorado and Utah. And God was stirring something deep within me about Utah and about Salt Lake City and about Mormons. And I prayed. And I knew he'd given me a green light to go to Utah. But about 4 o'clock in the morning, I spent the whole night up there alone. There's nobody up there. There's nobody within miles. It was terrifying. I don't like being alone in the dark. And if you step the wrong place, you're going to fall off a cliff a long, long way down. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, I believe Jesus inspired me. He impressed upon me that he was weeping over Salt Lake City the same way he wept, wept over Jerusalem as he looked at it from the Mount of Olives. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll go. And he put a fire in me that night to leave Grand Junction to make plans and to come to Salt Lake City. So I went home and we loaded up the wagon and hitched up the donkey and put Candace in the back and we trudged across the plains. It was a long time ago. It was back in the, back in about 85, 1985. I know it's a long time ago for most of you, but some of you weren't even born. And we came, we came to Salt Lake City. It's amazing what God does. The journey he takes us on. The person with passion never needs a jump start or a push because it's burning in them. And finally, a passionate person doesn't have to be convinced to start. They have to be forced to stop. Remember, four times Nehemiah is urged to stop the progress. But in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, I can't come down because I'm building a great work. I can't. I can't stop. Believe me, when you do something great for God, a lot of people are going to try to get you to stop. He says, I can't do it. So don't allow the blaze or the passion to be taken for granted. Listen to this. You've got to stoke the fire or it will go out. I want you to remember this. It's called the hot poker principle. Have you ever heard of it? The hot poker principle. Get your poker. Get it near the fire and it will stay hot. Move the poker away from the fire, and it will cool. Because the poker doesn't produce the heat. It has to stay close. We don't produce the fire. God does. Stay close to God. Or we'll burn out. But the biggest challenge, I'll wrap with this, the biggest challenge is not possessing or preserving passion, it's protecting it. So how do I protect the blaze? Here it is. You've got to beware of firefighters. When you really get on fire for God, you may not have it in your life right now, and if you don't, it's, it's should be, it should be noticed to you that you could use a little more passion. Firefighters will find you out. What is a firefighter? It's anyone who tries to put out your fire. Don't forget, it's natural. Firefighters look for fires. They're the people in your life looking to put out your fire. And they have slogans like, they'll cool off soon enough. Or from the, for the new believer, come down from the clouds. Come down and be one of us. Quit sharing with everybody. You're embarrassing us. Like I said before, you'll be like us soon enough. How about we've tried that before? Or it's not in our budget. It's not practical. Or one of the famous fire fighter slogans, yeah, but, or it'll never work, or we've never done it that way before. Here's a few facts about firefighters. Number one, they focus on what's wrong with an idea, not what's right. Number two, they possess a questioning spirit. I'm not talking about ask, not asking questions. Questions are fine. They have a questioning spirit. They ask questions with agendas, trying to hurt, tear down, divide, to put out the fire. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 4, six questions are asked 
to divide, cause doubt, raise suspicions of Nehemiah, etc. Is that crazy? So this stuff's so biblical. Number three, they work behind the scenes to cause dissension. Here's a great example. If Bill and Sue think there's a problem, and Bill and Jack think there's a problem, and Bill and Joe think there's a problem, and Bill and Sally think there's a problem, well, you can rest assured that Bill is the problem. Number four, they tend to be firelighters in dissension. In other words, they try to put out the right fires and light the wrong ones. Number five, firefighters hate change. They protect their position and their territory. And number six, firefighters keep many people with wonderful potential from doing something great for God. In fact, I've gone back and I've listed many people in my life since junior high school who had attempted to extinguish my fire, my passion. And for me, the largest group, interestingly, because I became a pastor when I was 22, the largest group were other pastors, my peers, jealousies, and they tried to stop me from accomplishing anything for God. So you need to beware. Firefighters in your life can in include family or friends or even your peers. Remember Jesus? He faced the scribes and the Pharisees. They weren't full of light in life. What were they full of? Jesus described them. What did Jesus call the scribes and the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs, whited sepulchers, beautiful tombs full of what? Dead men's bones. Yeah? So in conclusion, I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions on how to produce a blaze in your life. First, hang out with fire lighters. Hang out with people that inspire you. Are you inspired by your pastors? Every chance you get, spend time with them. Let them breathe into your life and breathe into them. As they spend time with other firelighters, we're all looking to be charged and recharged and seeking God to be on fire for him and avo avoid the firefighters. Next, attend firelighting events. Gather with the church. It is time for us to gather again. It is time for us to turn off our televisions and, and our, our smartphones and our devices, and gather with the church and not forsake the gathering of ourselves because there will be power encounters when we do. And finally, important, attempt fire lighting deeds for God. Do something. Step out into the water. Take a risk. Be a modern-day Elijah. I'll wrap with this. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a powerful, powerful illustration that's very apropos to what we're talking about. Elijah versus 450 prophets of Baal. Most people don't mention that there was in addition 400 prophets of the goddess Asherah. So there was actually 850 prophets versus one. Not very fair odds, right? And the challenge is, to find out which God we're going to serve. Because Israel as a nation can't decide. They're not faithful. They're fluctuating between the God of Israel and these pagan gods. And so Elijah, with Israel gathered and all these prophets there in his presence on top of Mount Carmel says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build two altars and we're going to sacrifice two bulls or two oxen and you call upon the name of your God, all you prophets of, of Baal and Asherah, and I will call upon the name of my God, and the God who answers by fire, by fire, he is God. So they prepared their altar, and they called the name of Baal from the morning until noon, and they said, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And so they cried aloud. And they cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out. It was a disgusting scene. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now look, 850 of an unsuccessful, what can one do? What can one do? So Elijah built an altar in the name of the Lord. And it says... In front of Israel, he took 12 stones. 
And he said, Israel, these 12 stones are the 12 sons of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's renamed Israel. The 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 stones, this is your ancestry. And he built an altar out of those stones, and he reminded them of the covenant God had with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. And then he made a trench around it. He dug a trench around the altar that he built. And then he put wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And then he said this. He said, fill four jars full of water, and I want you to douse the sacrifice, douse the meat, and I want you to douse the wood, cover it with water. He said, good. Do it a second time. He said, good. He said, do it a third time. And the water covered the sacrifice, the wood, and it filled the trench around the altar. And then he prayed. He said, God, help me. I'm risking everything for you and for your kingdom. For your nation, Israel, I'm out on a limb here. But I trust you in the covenant promises that you've made. And the Bible says, then the fire of the Lord fell out of heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, all those compromising people, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I want you to remember tonight that our God is a wet wood, fire-lighting God. And there's nothing that you're facing that he can't take care of. He's bigger than our circumstances. He's bigger than the challenges facing Courageous Church. Nothing is too difficult for our God. Nothing is too difficult for Him. And so our prayer is, God, light the fire in us today. Just close your eyes with me for a second. Let me just address first the non-believer. In fact, Jen, if you just come to the keyboard, if you don't mind, and just play quietly. If you're a non-believer here, if you're becoming and haven't realized that God wants you to belong right now, tonight is your opportunity. It's time to repent. And repentance means to change the way you think. That's where it starts. It develops into the concept of changing the way you act. But you've got to change the way you think. You've got to turn around. When I change my mind, then it opens the door for me to change the way I live. And what most of us don't realize today is if we would stop, when we think we're pursuing God, but we haven't yet surrendered to God, if we would stop, listen to this, and we would turn around, you know what you would find? He was there all the time. He's chasing you. You think you're chasing God? Who are you kidding? Jesus died from the foundation of the world for you. Before you were a thought, Jesus already died for you. And he has a place for you in the Lamb's book of life. You just need to surrender and say, I want to belong right now. And then we can work on the becoming. That's discipleship. We'll work on that together, right, Pastor? We work on that together. Praise the Lord. You'll become a new creature in Christ, and he'll place a burning ember within you. That's his spirit. And believe me, It'll burn, and you'll be on fire. And so in just a minute, we'll stand together, if you want to, to say, I've decided to follow Jesus. But let's just address the believer, and we can do all this together. I know it's late, but I'm wrapping it up. To the believer, are you ready? Are you ready to allow God to fan the flame in you? Are you ready to stir up the gifts that already exist inside of you? You're a believer. You've felt this before. You know what I'm talking about. Are you ready to let God rekindle the flame in you? Let me ask you, is your wood wet? Because it doesn't matter. 
God can see through our superficial presentation. He sees the heart of the matter. In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, Peter and James, they said, we can't help say the things that we've seen or heard. And they were let go, and they, they went back to the people, and they shared a story. Remember we talked about that? And when they shared the story, it so inspired the people that they raised their voices to God, and they prayed. And this is what they prayed. This is what the people prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And what happened? And what can happen? The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled again with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. That's what I want. I want to be a bold witness for Jesus because I know him. I want to make him known, but I need his power to do that. And so right now, if you're a believer and you need this, I encourage you as I start praying for anyone that wants to make a commitment to Christ. If you're a believer and this is you, this is not responding to me. If the Holy Spirit has stirred you at all in this message, he's talking to you, and I want you to stand up and acknowledge to him. And I'm not even, you know, do it, do it, don't do it for me. Do it for the Lord. Let him know you want your passion reignited. I'm going to begin praying. If you're a non-believer, but you're ready to give your life to Christ, just pray a simple prayer like this. And then a believer, if you're here and you want God to touch you, just stand where you are. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to have you come up. I'm not going to embarrass you. But you need to let God know you mean business. Let God know you, you want him to stir you up inside to make a difference. But for that person saying, I need Jesus in my life, simply pray a prayer like this. Repeat these words after me. Father, I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe you not only died, but I believe you rose from the dead. And you ascended into heaven, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father. And as Jim mentioned, you're knocking at the door of my heart. You're knocking at the door of my heart, and I'm going to open my heart right now. And I say, Jesus, come in. I confess that you are Lord. I believe in my heart God raised you from the dead. You said if I do that, I'd be saved, but I can feel you coming into my heart right now. Fill me with your spirit. Change me. Give me that burning ember. Put your spirit in me and let me be a witness for you. I'm not going to try becoming any longer. I want to belong. I want to be a part of the family. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. And I'll walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. And as believers tonight, Lord, we say, shake us again. Stir us again. Fill us again and send us out in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.